Hello and welcome everybody. This is Dr. Tully for History... Oh, what history is this? History 327. Uh, today we're going to be talking about a little bit about Freedom Summer, which you've probably already read the book about, so I'm not going to get too much into Freedom Summer. Uh, but also we're going to be talking about radicalism, kind of talking about the radicalism of the civil rights movement. When we last talked about the civil rights movement, it was still kind of the early uh, idealistic time. Where you have things like, uh, oh, you know, the Civil Rights Act, the Voting Rights Act, uh, sit-ins, things like that. Uh, however, things get a bit more radical. Um, interesting stuff happens. So uh, if you go over one slide, you'll see Freedom Summer. Like I said, we've talked about Freedom Summer. You've read the book on Freedom Summer. So I'm not really going to get too, too much into Freedom Summer. Uh, just know that it's very idealistic that Freedom Summer is. But still, there's high hopes that maybe decent things are going to happen. And if you go over one more, um, you're going to hear basically everything theoretically should have been peachy keen following the passage of the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act. Um, you know, 1964, 1965, Civil Rights Act, Voting Rights Act. They are good pieces of legislation. Everybody seems to like them. And theoretically, it has, um, you know, solved segregation, basically made it that the, um, you know, you cannot discriminate. But that's on a federal level. That's pretty much all the stuff that federal governments could control. Things like the schools, uh, civil rights, and voting rights, they are the things that the federal government actually has a hand in. They're the things that the federal government can actually do something about. Um, most discrimination, though, is informal. Most discrimination really isn't done at the federal level. It's generally not codified on the federal level. Likewise, when you're talking about private industry, private business, and private property, it gets a lot harder to try to enforce federal mandates, uh, telling people what they can and can't do on their private industry. And also, I should mention, a lot of this stuff is informal. It's not, we have an explicit direction against a certain group of people, even though that's really how it is in practice. But if it's not a codified system, that's kind of what happens. And that's definitely the case in Watts, all right? This really comes to, the, to a head in Watts. Watts is a... Um, primarily black area of Los Angeles. Uh, the Watts riots happened in 1965. Now, Los Angeles, as we know it, is kind of a modern-ish invention. Uh, of course, all American cities are kind of modern. Let me, let me rephrase that. Uh, for most of its history, Los Angeles was not a particularly large town. It doesn't really explode in growth uh, until after World War II. It's around World War II that the city really, really grows. And a pretty big population of... of uh, of Los Angeles in this time period, World War II, is African-Americans. African-Americans are coming to Watts. They're coming to, sorry, they're coming to Los Angeles, and they're ending up in Watts, but they're coming to Los Angeles for things like work. Uh, there, are the, there are a lot of um, industry jobs, uh, sorry, defense industry jobs, uh, military factories, you know, making um, airplanes, making, you know, war stuff. Uh, there are shipyards in Los Angeles, which are also making Navy uh, ships. And these jobs, at the time, do not discriminate against African-Americans because of various federal things put into place, preventing uh, anybody who gets a federal con contract from uh, being prejudiced against certain races. And so you're having a lot of African-Americans moving to Los Angeles. Uh, also, there's the promise of less or no discrimination. I don't think anybody was idealistic enough to believe that there was no discrimination in Los Angeles, but they believe that there's going to be, quote-unquote, less discrimination. And what ends up happening in Los Angeles fairly early on is that the uh, the city's elite, those in charge, including the chief of police, 
uh, says that the city, the city is quote unquote overwhelmed. Uh, basically, it's like, oh my gosh, we have this huge influx of African Americans. We don't know what to quote unquote do with African Americans. It's very racist. I mean, it is the sixties. And basically, the police chief tries to recruit officers who quote know how to deal with black people. Uh, basically, it's like, oh, we want to hire officers that have experience with African Americans and know how to like you know treat African Americans. And instead of, like, hiring African-Americans or anything like that, or, like, trying to be somewhat kind in their hiring practices, uh, they basically try to hire uh, Southern officers. Pretty much the, the Los Angeles police force for many years is very Southern in its makeup, particularly of officers, uh, you know, those who are above beat cops, those who are making a lot of the decisions. A lot of them are Southerners uh, who are, you know, basically Southern individuals who have pretty prejudiced views towards African-Americans in this time period and are known for being quite brutal towards black citizens. Now, this is kind of an underlying current. This is not unusual in Los Angeles. I mean, it's about 20 years or so that this type of dynamic of the police force exists in Los Angeles. It's not until we get to the mid-60s where there's an economic downturn. Um, there had been a post-war manufacturing downturn. Now, this happens everywhere throughout the United States. Um, you know, manufacturing levels cannot keep up to the war levels. People are building a lot more stuff during the war. I mean, you're letting tanks and airplanes and boats and all sorts of things that uh, you're not going to need at a time of peace, theoretically. And so when this manufacturing downturn occurs, uh, unemployment goes up. Unemployment goes up, and it disproportionately impacts African-American citizens, particularly African-American men. Uh, a lot of black men are, you know, are becoming unemployed. They're some of the first fired. And, and, and Watts, which is a neighborhood within Los Angeles, which, by the way, I should mention, Los Angeles uh, does not have formal segregation. It does not have segregation by law. But what it does have is kind of segregation by practice. This is something that's very common in most northern cities in the United States. They can claim, oh, we don't have discrimination, we don't have segregation, but what they mean is they don't have segregation by the law. Um, still to this day, a lot of northern cities are fairly segregated in terms of neighborhoods. Uh, pretty much certain areas, certain neighborhoods are viewed as belonging to one race or another. This was a case in Los Angeles, South Central Los Angeles, but also a place like Watts. Watts is a neighborhood in Los Angeles that becomes pretty much majority African-American by practice. And it's not really that great whenever the police force, which is known for being not that nice towards African-Americans because the chief of police is recruiting Southern officers who are going to be rather brutal to African-Americans. Um, an area like Watts, which before this time had been viewed as a working-class African-American community uh, because jobs were you know, fairly plentiful, uh, once the economic downturn comes and disproportionately impacts African-American men, the whole area of Watts is deemed dangerous and seedy. It's, it's deemed as dangerous, deemed low class, and it really shouldn't be too surprising that uh, police start amping up the uh, police presence, start you know amping up enforcement because it has this reputation of being unsafe, and it's kind of a vicious cycle. Basically, the, the cops are known to be brutal because the area of Watts is known as a crime place and it gets a perception of crime because more cops are there. And I should mention, you know, a lot of the African-American men who are living in Watts feel that they're being unfairly, um, you know, prejudiced against, which is which is fair. Uh, and also they feel that they don't have a job, which, as you can see, uh, having a decent economy, having a job, 
is very tied into a lot of these civil rights issues. Basically, you know, the country is being a bit more willing to uh, secede, not secede civil rights, but, you know, be, be willing to, you know, talk about a civil rights issue when the economy's good. When the economy's not good, it tends to back down. And likewise, what good is something like the Civil Rights Act or the Voting Rights Act if you don't have a job? I mean, think about from the perspective of these African-American men. You know, yeah, oh, I can vote. Great. And I'll get federal assistance in voting. If I can't put food on the table, who cares? It doesn't mean anything. So that's the background for Watts. I haven't even gotten into the riot itself. But you understand the background. There's a lot of things going on here. And on August 11th, 1965, a guy by the name of Marquette Fry is pulled over for drunk driving. He is pulled over for drunk driving, which he was. He, w- he was indeed drunk. That is, that is not up for debate. He was indeed a drunk driver. And he starts resisting arrest. He starts resisting arrest. Basically, the cops pull him over. He starts resisting arrest, mainly because he's drunk. He, he's drunk. He's being a little belligerent. Now, this really shouldn't have been a big deal. I mean, no offense to Mr. Fry, but... Um, that is not worthy of much notice. I mean, a cop pulling over a drunk driver is not unusual. Um, I don't think anybody's mad about a cop pulling over a drunk driver. Likewise, a drunk driver being a little belligerent with a cop, that's also not really news. But what happens is while he starts arresting, while he starts uh, resisting arrest, Uh, there's a crowd that's drawn in. Basically, this is happening on a fairly busy street in Watts, and all of a sudden, you know, there there are African-American men who are just kind of hanging out, hanging out on the night, and they see, you know, the cops being a little rough towards Fry, and they're like, hey, this is indicative of other stuff. And they start coming to his aid. They start coming to his aid. Now, this is another thing that you see in a lot of these cases, a lot of these police brutality cases or whatever. It's generally not the case itself. It's the idea that it's a pattern of behavior. It's all the other times that it's happened. And that's the case with Marquette Fry. The case of Marquette Fry of itself, like I said, drunk driver, getting pulled over because he's drunk, not really that big of an issue. However, the people in Watts see it as indicative of police behavior towards African-Americans in the past, and they start coming to his aid. They basically say, hey, cops, why are y'all being so mean to him? This is too much. The cops start calling for backup. As they're calling for backup, this gets more residents out. It's really escalating. It's escalating fairly quickly. Fairly quickly, if you go over one slide, you're going to see what ends up happening in Watts. Uh, several thousand people come out. They start turning over cop cars, throwing bottles, and chanting things like, burn, baby, burn. Now, it doesn't stop after that night. That's the thing. It goes on for a while. Once again, this is going to be kind of a reoccurring theme with some of these riots. You have it later on in 92 with the L.A. riots. Um, It starts out as one instance, which isn't necessarily that big of a deal in of itself, but it's indicative of a larger trend. And throughout the area, okay, after that first night in Watts, um, it grows. The riots start growing. Looting becomes more common. If you go over one slide, you're going to see buildings get destroyed. And I will admit, for outsiders, it seemed counterintuitive. They're like, hey, these African-Americans, they're fighting for their rights. Why are they destroying Watts? You know, they're, they're destroying, quote-unquote, their, their own area. It's, it's Watts. This may not be a good area, but it's a decent area. There's this question, it's like, oh, these people, should we give them more rights? They're, look at them, they're burning down their own neighborhood. That sort of criticism is very common of the civil rights movement. Um, never stops. 
This idea that, hey, if, if African Americans can't, you know, treat their own buildings and their own area great, why should we trust them with anything else? As we said, it was indicative of a much larger trend. Um, you know, the destruction was not indicative of the, of, of the offense. It was more indicative of just the sense of hopelessness for a lot of these people. Now, what is ultimately happens in the Watts riots is that uh, the National Guard is sent in. You can see that picture right there. That is a National Guardsman. The National Guard is sent in. Uh, the damage itself is pretty bad. You have 34 people who die, uh, more than 1,000 who were injured, 4,000 arrested, and over 1,000 buildings destroyed. Uh, this is the worst riot up in U.S. history up to that point. Uh, in U.S. history, this was the worst riot in U.S. history, and the second worst overall in U.S. history, period. Um, the, only, the only one that, that surpasses it is the 92 Los Angeles riot, which also happens because of race relations and police brutality issues, but we're going to talk about that later when we get to the 90s. Now, the riot itself really, it in, in tandem with Vietnam, really helped dismantle the idea of the Great Society. Uh, this idea that we can just outspend our way from all these societal ills. You know, if we give these people money and all this stuff, are they going to just waste it? And uh, Andrew Johnson, Lyndon Johnson's a crazy person for doing this. And really spreads ascension on the idea that African Americans are not ready for equality. You're going to hear that a lot from Southerners. You're going to hear that from those who are opposed to the Civil Rights Acts and the federal government getting involved with it. They really start pressing this idea that, you know what, African Americans, they're not, quote unquote, ready for equality. And, the, and thus, we should kind of back off on the civil rights movement. But what does end up happening, what does end up happening is more riots. Uh, Watts is not the only riot. It's the biggest riot. It's the first riot of this kind of era. But it's not the only one. You have this period known as the Long Hot Summers. Uh, for the next couple years, 66, 67, there are going to be race riots throughout urban areas. Urban areas, not just Watts, but urban areas, and not just in the South. But places where you have African Americans who are dealing with discrimination, dealing with segregation, not necessarily in the South, and definitely not on a formal level. This is this informal, not legal, well, not in the law. It was legal. They could get away with it, uh, this, this sort of segregation. But, you know, not legally codified segregation. Uh, like I said, there are dozens of these riots in 1966. There are hundreds in 1967. Uh, tons of these riots. And these riots show that race stuff is not going to be solved so easily with federal action. And I should also mention they do increase resentment. Uh, it increases resentments of African Americans, increases resentments of people like Dr. King, who is still active. Uh, he does not just disappear after the March on Washington. He's still active. He's still trying. Actually, he's having a hard time with it. Uh, a couple of riots you might want to know about. Uh, the first one is Newark. Newark happens in 1967. Uh, it's a fairly bad riot, fairly bad riot. Uh, once again, it's it's a police action that causes it. Uh, looters are targeting white-owned businesses. Uh, African-American looters are targeting white-owned businesses, leading black ones alone. Uh, likewise, African-American snipers are targeting white police and emergency personnel, which causes the National Guard, which is mostly white, to fire on pretty much anybody. Uh, Newark's a very bad series of riots. Uh, by the time it is over... Uh, you have 24 people who are killed and 700 injured. And that's a fairly big riot. However, Detroit is worse. If you go over one slide, the Detroit riot is an even worse riot than the Newark riot. It's almost as bad as the Watts riot. 
Um, the Detroit riot, once again, kind of like Watts, it starts out with an incident that of itself is not necessarily a quote-unquote bad thing, nothing that uh, would warrant a riot in of itself. So what happens in Detroit? Well, I'll tell you what happens in Detroit. It all begins with a raid on an illegal bar. Uh, basically, there was an underground kind of a neighborhood bar. They're called Blind Pigs in Detroit. Uh, basically, it's it's an illegal bar. It's not really that big of a deal in of itself. You know, you're not supposed to be serving alcohol without a liquor license. Well, you're, you're not supposed to be selling alcohol without a legal license. You could serve it at your house, I suppose. Uh, you know, however, it really erupts fairly quickly doing, due to the underlying issues of race and housing, uh, police pr- brutality, things like that. Um, it was in an African-American community. Basically, some of the people who are arrested are like, wow, you're being unfair to us. You know, there are all sorts of white people who are drinking illegally and selling it, but you're not going after them. You're going after us. Interrupts very quickly because Detroit also has a lot of underlying race issues. Now, unlike Newark, uh, the looters and robbers that happen in Detroit really don't uh, pay attention to the race of the buildings they are robbing and destroying. Uh, A race of the owners, they are pretty much destroying anything wantonly. And Newark... It's a bit more targeted towards uh, white persons. In Detroit, it's just destroy everything. Um, local media does try to underreport the violence. At least early on, basically, the media in Detroit is like, hey, this isn't that big of a deal. It's very small, very localized. That doesn't really work. In time, it grows to be much, much, much bigger. Uh, also, looters begin stealing guns and using them on police. Uh, which is, uh, you know, that's that's uh, that's <laughs> that's one of those things that when you hear about, it, you're like, oh, okay, yeah, that's definitely a riot. Now, the governor of uh, of Michigan at this time is a guy by the name of George Romney. George Romney, last name might sound familiar. Um, he's Mitt Romney's dad. He is the Republican governor of Michigan. He claims before he's like, okay, I'm pretty even on you know uh, racial issues. He, you know, he this is back when Republicans are still seen as kind of the party of African Americans or somewhat. This is kind of where the switch is starting to happen. Uh, he does send in the National Guard. He sends well, not the National Guard, but the Michigan National Guard. He sends in the about six, sorry, eight thousand members of the Michigan National Guard. It doesn't really help. It doesn't really help. Uh, it's just not enough of a force to ke- to quell the riot. So Mitt Romney, sorry, George Romney, George Romney, my, Mitt Romney's a kid. Uh, Romney asked Lyndon Johnson for help. Uh, basically, he, he calls on Lyndon Johnson saying, hey, could you send in the National Guard? Uh, so LBJ is kind of hesitant at first. Remember, Vietnam is still going on. LBJ is still kind of early. In his, well, he's not early in his tenure. It's 67. But, you know, he's, he's definitely trying to do this Great Society stuff. He doesn't like the idea of using U.S. military on citizens, but he does send t- paratroopers. Send in paratroopers to try to like quell the violence. Uh, this results in even more escalation. Once like the military military gets involved, uh, rioters start going uh, further against the, uh, the 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 authorities. Uh, the military starts using things like tanks and machine guns. This also doesn't go over too well because you're using tanks and machine guns on U.S. citizens. And the death toll kept rising. Uh, the death toll kept rising. Uh, civil rights leaders, uh, civil rights movement leaders, such as Dr. King, they try to get a ceasefire. Uh, nothing really ever seems to work. 
but after about a week, pretty much the firepower of the military and the police was just insurmountable. Uh, the final fire went out. Uh, they set fires all over Detroit. And the military pulled out after about a week. Uh, what was left was the damage. Uh, 43 people were killed. About 1,000 were injured. 7,000 were arrested. And there are millions in property damage. Uh, a little bit less than Watts, though. A little bit less than Watts. As, as I said, it was close. It was close to Watts. It actually killed a few more people than Watts. But uh, the amount of damage and the amount of arrest were actually it's more than Watts. But it's it's... To this day, the third biggest riot in U.S. history. Uh, only 67 watts, sorry, uh, 65 watts, this is 67 Detroit, and 92 Los Angeles are bigger. And so in the midst of all this, it's only natural to start asking, why are these things happening? Okay, it's logical to ask why all this happened. If you go over one slide, a lot of studies were done. A lot of studies were done by the uh, by the government. Um, they, they start paying a lot of money to like investigate Watts, investigate Detroit, find out what are the underlying causes. And these studies blame a couple things. They blame things like police brutality, uh, unemployment in black households, substandard housing. That's a huge uh, issue in Detroit is the uh, housing that is available for African-Americans really lags behind, not having basic utilities or uh, being well insulated or having good heat, which is a necessity in a place like Detroit, which is next to Canada, and it gets really freaking cold. And also white flight. Uh, white flight. Uh, white flight, if you're unfamiliar with it, that's the idea that basically African-Americans move into a community, then white folks move out into places like the suburbs. And when people are leaving for the suburbs, that kind of erodes the tax base of a city. They're not able to provide enough city services. What services they do have tend to lessen, whereas the suburbs keep getting better and better. And they have these uh, racial covenants that prevent uh, white people from selling to African Americans. Well, they try to at least. But then it just gets to a larger, never-ending cycle of like you know people moving further and further out from a community or from a larger city. But a lot of the studies do place a good deal of the focus on black militancy. All right. A lot of it talks about, hey, there's this underlying character, uh, underlying characteristic of the civil rights movement that hadn't really been seen before, and that is this idea of militancy. Um, although earlier movements had advocated nonviolence, although earlier movements had advocated for nonviolence, such as Dr. King, um, this younger generation is not really certain about its merits. You know, the, those who are advocating for nonviolence, they tend to be a bit older. You know, these are uh, people like Dr. King. He's, uh, he, you know, he's, he's a, of an older generation. He's in his 30s, which, granted, I'm in my 30s, but actually that's a decent generation. I'm in my 30s. Um, you, those of you listening to this, most of you are probably in your, you know, your late teens, early 20s, your college student age. Um, even though I'm considered a youngish man, uh, I guess I'm considered a, a man, not youngish anymore, which makes me sad because I am pushing 40, but still... Uh, we are definitely of different generations. We're definitely of different generations. You know, we did not necessarily grow up the same way. And you have this happening in the civil rights movement with this younger generation being like, hey, um, there's really not much to be said for nonviolence. You know, what's the point of singing all these hymns and dressing up in our Sunday best if we're going to get our faces smashed in? Uh, probably a really good example of this entire principle is Stokely Carmichael. Uh, Stokely Carmichael is a great example of this principle. Uh, he is an interesting cat. Uh, he is born in Trinidad in 1941. In 1941, he's born in Trinidad, which makes him about eh, you know 15 years or so younger than Dr. King. But he moves to Harlem as a child. He moves to Harlem as a child, 
and he gets involved in the civil rights movement fairly young as a student organizer. You know, he, he gets he gets involved uh, in his college. You know, getting involved as a student organizer, uh, very much involved with the with the civil rights movement. Uh, if you go up one more, you see him hanging out with Dr. King. You know, he's definitely in that same milieu. He gets very high up in SNCC for quite a while. He's even in its head for a short while. Uh, SNCC being the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. They're the ones who do the sit-ins and the freedom rides. And one of the big organizi- organizing factors of, uh, of the Freedom Summer in Mississippi in fact, his first civil rights action is indeed the Freedom Rides. He's the one who gets involved in the Freedom Rides. Uh, if you're unfamiliar with the Freedom Rides, that's where basically a, a group of, of uh, black and white students decide we're going to ride on a Greyhound bus throughout the South to prove that the interstates are indeed desegregated. Uh, during the Freedom Rides, he actually gets sent to prison. Uh, he gets sent to Parchman Prison in Mississippi. If you're unfamiliar with Parchman Prison in Mississippi, it's like the Angola of Mississippi. It's a very uh, brutal prison, uh, known for being like a farm or an old plantation. Uh, also, he is involved in Freedom Summer. He's a field secretary on, for SNCC under Bob Moses. You're definitely familiar with Bob Moses because of, uh, of the Freedom Summer stuff. And he does work during Freedom Summer. You know, he's still very much a, uh, a quote-unquote good guy. You know, he's still believing in nonviolence. You know, he's not trying to rock the boat here. He still believes in the, the promise of these sort of things. Now, the turning point for him, though, is what happens to James Meredith. If you go over one more slide, uh, James Meredith, if you don't remember James Meredith, that's, that's okay. Um, actually, I don't think I've talked about him yet. Uh, James Meredith was the first black man to try to enlist in Old Miss. Okay, He tries to enlist in Old Miss. This is under Kennedy's administration. Kennedy sends in the... Um, Sends in the well. It's actually Robert Kennedy who sends in the U.S. Marshals because John Kennedy's a little hesitant to do anything. However, uh, then after a couple marshals are killed, that's when Kennedy sends in the uh, the National Guard to make this done. Uh, James Meredith is, however, becoming a little bit of a civil rightsy figure this time period. Uh, you know, he's kind of an icon. Uh, in the summer of 1966, he undertakes a solo march in Mississippi uh, for voting rights for civil rights. Uh, he wants to march from Memphis, like right from the border of Mississippi to Jackson, basically are advocating for civil rights, advocating for voting rights, you know, kind of a one-man protest. Uh, he doesn't really want big organizations involved with this. He doesn't really want to get involved with, you know, either with SNCC or with, with uh, the SCLC, you know, get Dr. King's organization involved. He wants this to be a one-man movement. However, he does accept some individual help with people like Carmichael. He's like, all right, you know, stoically you can get involved with it. Uh, Meredith is actually shot fairly early on, though. He is shot by somebody. He is injured while still in the Delta. If you're from with the Delta, that's like the northwest part of Mississippi. In fact, if you go over one slide, you'll see a photograph of after Meredith getting shot. Um, he did not die. He did not die. In fact, uh, James Meredith is still around. He's still around. Um, not as much involved with civil rights stuff. He actually goes kind of hardcore conservative, but he's still around. I mean, you know, he's still considered an icon. Um... And, and so basically, Carmichael swears to finish the march. He's like, basically, James Meredith was shot. You know, this is, how can you hate this guy? You know, all he wanted to do was go to Ole Miss, and now he's doing this one-man march. You know, he's not a big organization. He's not a threat. And yet he gets shot by the racist Mississippi. Uh, Carmichael swears to finish the speech. Uh, shortly after that, he is arrested in Greenwood, Mississippi, which is also in the Delta. When Carmichael is bowed out, you can go over one more slide, 
he gives a speech. He gives a speech in which he demands black power. This is where the term black power comes from, primarily from Carmichael's speech, where basically he says black folks, we shouldn't wait for the government or the white man to give rights. He's like, look, if we're going to wait for the government or for the white man to give us the rights, we're going to be waiting forever. If we want something, we should organize and take it for ourselves. Basically, black empowering, you know, we're not going to protest, being nice about it. We're not going to wear our Sunday best and get beaten up and be like, oh, please, you know, Mr. 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 Government, please give me some rights. It's, you know what, we're just going to take it. Now, this concept grows like wildfire. Like, this is a lightning bolt. This spreads. Uh, Carmichael is saying things like SNCC and uh, nonviolence are dated. They should be tossed out. He does work with uh, Martin Luther King some, but he's actually willing to dismiss white members from the civil rights movement. He basically says uh, there are poor white areas they can focus upon them said. Basically says, hey, we don't need white people involved with this anymore, even if you're a good-hearted you know, white person. Uh, stick with poor white areas. They're the ones who need your help. Now, he is ultimately dismissed, though, from SNCC for comments he makes about women and also his unwillingness to work with white people. Uh, that pretty much gets him kicked out of SNCC. Weirdly enough, though, the next leader of SNCC, though, that basically says that uh, white pe- dismisses all white people and says that black folks should buy guns. Now, upon leaving uh, SNCC, he is offered a position um, as head minister of, if you go one more over slide, of the Black Panther Party. Now, Stokely Carmichael is not a founder of the Black Panther Party, but he becomes affiliated with them for a while. So let's talk about the origins of the Black Panther Party. Let's talk about the origins of the Black Panther Party. If you go over one more slide, you'll see a picture of the original Panthers. Now, they're a unique organization at the time, and it has a very West Coast feel. Uh, They're very West Coast, uh, very much not based in the South. All right. Uh, initially, they're in Oakland, California. They were formed in Oakland, California in 1966 by Bobby Seale and Huey P. Newton. Uh, you can see them there in the middle. They're, they're there in the middle. Uh, Oakland is, if you're unfamiliar with Oakland, it's across the bay from San Francisco, traditionally seen as an African-American area. It's also a very industrial area during World War II. They have shipyards and things, but because of the uh, downturn in manufacturing after World War II, Eh, not as much going on there. Becomes viewed a little bit like Watts as a uh, crime, quote-unquote, area with a lot of African-Americans. Now, the initial goal of the Black Panther Party is to police the police. Right? Basically, they say, hey, police are being too harsh against African-Americans. Uh, we think the police are being neglecting uh, their duties. And so they do some things which are viewed as like, okay, that's normal, like a neighborhood watch. But they also have armed surveillance. Basically, uh, an early hallmark of the Black Panther Party is this idea of, no, we're going to be armed whenever we police the police. You know, who watches the watchmen? We do that. Now, early on, they do have a clash with police. I mean, you know, armed people going, you know, just watching around the police. That could cause some tensions to flare up. A couple of the early members are killed during a clash with the police. Which, ironically enough, actually uh, increases their number. It increases membership in the Black Panther Party uh, because of uh, this, armed, this armed, you know, conflict. Gets people more involved with it. Uh, they also do other things. They do quite a bit of other things. You know, it's not just violent revolutionaries. They do things like giving free breakfast to school children. Uh, that's a hallmark of the Black Panther Party for a long time in Oakland. 
is basically like, hey, if kids aren't getting, you know, food, they can't really pay attention in class, which I, I can attest to that as a, as a teacher. I've taught for a long time, and I can assure you, if you're hungry, you're not paying attention to me. So if you want to get a snack right now, please do. <laughs> but arm resistance is at their core. If you go over one slide, you're going to see kind of the, uh, the classic picture of the Black Panther Party. Um, they're, they're actually holding um, flags in that picture. Not necessarily guns, but if you go over one more slide, you will see them with guns. In fact, they're one of the reasons why the Mumford Act is passed. The Mumford Act is an act in California. Basically uh, outlaws the, the uh, open carry of loaded firearms. Uh, this was part of the Black Panther Party's thing. Was Basically they were armed. Basically they were walking around with guns. Basically saying, hey, you're not going to squash our rights because we are armed and willing to defend ourselves. This, they, they claim they are able to do that because of, uh, oh, you know, the Second Amendment and that sort of thing. Uh, however, whenever there's a protest in Sacramento, basically they go to the Capitol. Uh, you can see how the Sacramento Bee um, <laughs> interprets this, uh, that the Capitol is invaded. They, the Capitol was not really invaded. It was more like the Black Panthers were, they weren't even doing a protest. They are just like, you know, standing around the Capitol with guns just as a, Defiant measure of like, hey, don't squash our rights, don't mess with us. Uh, the guy who really spearheads the uh, Mumford Act is Ronald Reagan, who is now governor of California in this time period. Ronald Reagan is the governor of California in this time period. Um, he gets this, I mean, I told you, well, in 64, he has his, uh, has a speech for the Republican National Convention, and then he becomes governor of California in 66, and a lot of his, his um, popularity, his political appeal, comes from opposing things like the Black Panther Party. He's the one who really pushes for the passage of the uh, Mumford Act. Still, the Black Panther Party, if you go for one more slide, it is growing in power and publicity and popularity over time. Uh, for instance, they provide security for Betty Shabazz. Uh, that's Malcolm X's widow whenever she comes to San Francisco. Um, also, some things happened to some of the initial Black Panther, um, Black Panther uh, founders. Uh, for instance, Huey P. Newton is accused of killing a police officer in 1967. Uh, and Bobby Hutton, little Bobby Hutton, he was the first member of the Black Panther Party, the first recruit, I should say, not the first member. That'd be that'd be uh, that'd be uh, old Seal and Newton. But he's a first recruit. He's a younger guy. He's called the Minister of Defense. He's killed in a gunfight that also, um, he also shot two police before he was killed. Um, Andrew Kiever was also hurt in the fight, but he jumped to bail and he actually flees to Cuba. They do start to grow outside of Oakland and reach their apex around 1970. Um, they're not just in Oakland. There are other Black Panther chapters throughout uh, the, the U.S. Uh, there's actually a pretty good movie that came out a year ago called uh, Jesus and the Black Messiah, sorry, Judas and the Black Messiah, Talking about a, a Black Panther leader in Chicago, who basically uh, there was there was fear among J. Edgar Hoover that uh, he could like unite all sorts of African Americans together. In fact, J. Edgar Hoover called them the most dangerous group in the United States and the greatest threat to security. Uh, there are globs of accusations that they are communists. Uh, that's still an accusation thrown at the Black Panther Party today when people talk about them. Um, they're theoretically still around. I, I wouldn't call them the same Black Panther Party. There's like the new Black Panther Party. Uh, but still this idea that, you know, some parts of the Black Panther Party platform are like, hey, capitalism causes inequity. That makes them accused of being communist. Uh, the group does start to kind of wane in um, 
and influence after the early 1970s, mainly through mismanagement, mainly through mismanagement. Also, a lot of the early leave, but and because of this mismanagement, a lot of the early members start leaving. Uh, it became kind of too big; they couldn't really control it, and it gets kind of big. But still, probably their biggest legacy is the imagery. The imagery of the Black Panther Party is probably their biggest legacy. Uh, this idea of you know African Americans wearing leather, having the having the afro, having guns. Uh, I should mention the afro in this time period is seen as a um, it's a naturalist symbol, also seen as a part of the idea of black beauty. This idea of like, natural beauty, this idea that you know you don't need chemicals, relaxers, or hot combs, or all sorts of things to get your hair straight because that's the way that you know white people think hair should be. Wear your hair natural. Let it be curly. Let it be coarse. You know, have the afro. Uh, that's a black is beautiful thing. Black Panther Party is also part of that, but it's a much larger movement outside of that when it comes to black beauty. But then we get to the bad year. If you go over one slide, you will see 1968, the bad year. Um, there have been many bad years in U.S. history. Some argue that 2020 was a pretty bad year. Uh, 1919 was viewed as a bad year, but I hold pretty much 1968 is like the bad year in U.S. history. Now, Martin Luther King, you might remember he had a dream back in 65. You know, I have a dream speech. Uh, the aftermath, though, is not that great for him. Um, you know, it, it, it's very common to view Dr. King as like, all right, he has a dream, and it's wonderful, and after he gives a speech, everything is happy and good. That's not really what happens to him. Um, he's viewed as passe by some of the uh, Black Power members, viewed as old-fashioned, out of the times. And in 1966, he actually goes to uh, Chicago. He goes to Chicago to help deal with housing issues, help deal with housing issues, mainly that there is discrimination against African-Americans in Chicago, uh, in neighborhoods, in housing. And when he gets there, it's, it's brutal. Like, it is brutal for him in Chicago. If you go over one side, you'll see some of the brutality. Uh, he was not expecting this level of vile. He was not expecting this level of vitriol and hatred that he got from Chicago white people. He legitimately felt the North would be easier than the South. He's like, all right, cool, we tried the South. The North is going to be a little bit easier. And they, uh, he's like, yeah, it's not the case. He has this quote where basically he's like, in the South, they're going to look you in the eye and call you an N-word before they act violently towards you. You know your enemy. He's like, in Chicago, they, say, they don't say a word, they just do bad things to you. He's like, you know, in the South, I'd get yelled at. I kind of knew who was a safe person, who was an unsafe person. Uh, like, for instance, that picture right there is after he gets hit with a brick at a park. He's literally just walking in a park, and somebody just throws a brick at him. Like, he's not being yelled at, not nothing. Somebody just throws a brick. He does live in Chicago in a while with his family. Like I said, he's hit by that brick, keeps on protesting. Uh, but the counter-protests against him are ironically bigger than any of the ones he gets in the South. Like, in Chicago, he is really getting some vitriol against him, a lot of anger, a lot of hatred. If you go over one more slide, you're going to see him uh, dealing with this, uh, you know, doing some of these marches. Uh, ultimately, he does leave Chicago. He ultimately does leave Chicago, but he leaves Jesse Jackson, who's a young whippersnapper, young guy who's involved in uh, the SCLC in charge. Jesse Jackson's still around. He also protests, if you notice where he's marching with everybody, you know, people are born not to burn, stop the war now. He starts protesting the war in Vietnam. Uh, makes him a lot more divisive than he'd ever been before. Uh, when he dies in 68, which, spoiler, that's coming, he's actually one of the more hated people in America. He's a very divisive figure. He's not this well-loved, well-respected, by all sides, uh, civil rights figure. 
mainly his his going against uh, the Vietnam War makes him way more divisive. Uh, he's viewed as anti-American, more communist. His argument against the war, if you go over one more slide, you're going to see one of his speeches, why I'm opposed to the war in Vietnam. He is arguing that it is leave, uh, that is taking resources that could have been used for social programs. Uh, ironically, that's similar like Lyndon Johnson, who has a similar argument against the Vietnam War, but he feels that he can't pull out. Basically, uh, yeah, that, that's King's real sentiment. He, he basically starts saying that... Um, uh, this also gets some more enemies. Uh, for instance, Billy Graham, who before time was kind of, uh, you know, okay with King, really starts saying that King's gone too far. Uh, the other thing King starts doing is he starts uh, talking against capitalism. Go over one more slide. He starts talking more against capitalism, which is a huge wince in American politics. Uh, generally, when you start criticizing capitalism, that does not end well for your popularity. Uh, he does claim to be more socialist in his theory, lowercase s socialist. Uh, he's never a full communist. Uh, he does have some communist influence, particularly in terms of, terms of distribution of wealth. But he claims that wealth needs to be distributed uh, better than it in the U.S. than it has been in the past. He starts saying that, you know, until we deal with economic inequality, we'll never get racial inequality. Uh, you know, the military-industrial complex, he's like, until we start uh, dealing with that, we'll never get racial inequality. When he starts linking racial inequality to larger, like, economic issues, yeah, this alienates even more people than King. He becomes a much more decisive figure. Uh, to help with this, as you see the poster he's holding up in 1968, uh, he starts what he's called the Poor People Campaign. The Poor People's Campaign is designed to help all poor people, regardless of race. Uh, he is becoming more anti-capitalist and insisting that finances have more to do with civil rights than just fighting discrimination. Uh, it's viewed as too big and unwieldy. Even Byron Rustin, uh, Bayard Rustin, who is uh, King's organizing guy for a lot of the early stuff, including the I Have a Dream March, um, Rustin's like, ah, this is just too big, too unwieldy. King's talking about maybe we have like a, a poor people strike on Washington, start talking about things like guaranteed employment or a guaranteed income. Uh, this is viewed by many as Dr. King losing it. Basically, um, he's viewed as kind of losing it. Uh, this idea that he's you know gone away from the civil rights stuff, gone away from African-American equality. Now that he's talking more about economic issues, talking more about social issues, redistribution of wealth, uh, he becomes a much more divisive and, and honestly a much more hated figure. Uh, Dr. King is very hated by the time. And by the time we get to, like, spring of 1968, in April 1968, uh, he travels to Memphis. He travels to Memphis, part of this whole financial influence, to give a, um, actually to help negotiate, not give, but to help negotiate a garbage strike. Uh, sanitation workers are on strike in Memphis. They are arguing for higher uh, wages, uh, you know, more respect in their job. A lot of them are African-American, and Dr. King is coming in to be a strike negotiator. Now, this is something he hadn't really done before. Remember, he's seen as a reverend, seen as a, seen as a, a religious figure, you know, a happy, uh, not a happy figure, but, uh, you know, the nonviolent, non-confrontational one. And now he's talking more about we need to negotiate with people. Uh, this is viewed as much more leftist in his ideology. Uh, he does get some resentment in Memphis. 
There are the usual complaints about outside adaptation. This is nothing too unique for King. Nothing too u- unique for King. Uh, he does get a couple death threats. Once again, that's not too surprising. He's also kind of used to it. Still, on the night of April 3rd, if you go over one slide, he gives what's known as the mountaintop speech. The mountaintop speech is a very remarkable speech in its degree of, God, uh, foresight. It's almost prophetic. Uh, basically, he gives a speech. Basically, he said, I've been to the mountaintop. He compares himself to Moses. If you know the story of Moses in the Bible, uh, Moses never enters into the promised land. Uh, he never enters into the promised land. He takes the uh, Israelites outside of Egypt. He never makes it into Canaan, never makes it into the promised land. However, before he dies, God takes him on top of a mountain and shows him the promised land, and then Moses dies. And, and basically, King is like, look, I'm probably not going to make it much longer. Um, I, I'm probably not going to see the promised land, but I've been to the mountaintop. I've seen what the future might be like. I'm probably not going to make it. And it's weird because he's really talking about this. And ironically, the next day at the Lorraine Motel, uh, you can see there's Dr. King of Lorraine Motel. There's Jesse Jackson standing next to him. Uh, King is hanging out at the Lorraine Motel. Lorraine Motel is a fairly well-known motel in Memphis for African-Americans. It's viewed as a safe place for African-Americans. A lot of uh, musicians hang out there from Stax. Um, if you know Stax Records, I have a book about them, which whatever. Uh, it's just a place nearby this record studio. It's, it's kind of a place where African-Americans, it's a safe place, it's a motel, it's where you can stay out. And, and King is hanging out on the balcony. Uh, this picture is taken, like, right before he's shot, like, legit right before he's shot. He's hanging out with some of the other civil rights workers, some of the younger guys, including Justin Jackson. Uh, he actually takes a smoke break. He's taking a smoke break on the balcony, just smoking a cigarette, and he is shot by somebody. Um, he is shot by someone... Uh, if you go over one slide, you're going to see the picture of right after he's shot. There he is on the ground. The people around him are pointing out where they think the, a gunshot came from. He is shot by shum- somebody. Uh, more than likely, it was James Earl Ray. He's the one who was actually arrested for the crime. But James Earl Ray was like, look, I was set up. That shot was, you know, the angle was bad for me. I was not a great shot. I think somebody else might have ki- killed him. There are conspiracy theories about this is a planned assassination by the CIA. But it's and, and King does die shortly thereafter. He does die shortly thereafter. Now, you're probably aware of that. What you're probably not aware of is what happens after. Go over one more slide. There are riots across the United States. Like, there are so many very expensive riots across the United States. Uh, very big riots. Uh, Carmichael, for instance, Stokely Carmichael, he's in D.C. of this time period. And he wants the city to be respectful to uh, Dr. King's death. He's like, look, this is a guy who advocated nonviolence, but ironically, there's a lot of violence in response to Dr. King's death. Very expensive destruction and looting all over the country. Um, of, the ten, of the ten biggest riots in U.S. history, four of them are after King's death. Four of them are the riots in response to King's death. Uh, these really big ones are in D.C., where Carmichael was, Baltimore, Chicago, and New York City. Uh, there's still the, you know, if you look at the top 10 biggest riots in U.S. history, they're not the top three. We talked about the top three earlier. Well, we talked about two of the top three. Uh, we'll talk about the L.A. riots later. But, uh, you know, the, the, of, the, of the final, you know, seven riots that we're talking about, four of them, D.C., Baltimore, Chicago, are very big, very destructive. People die. People are arrested. Now, this also gives more credence to black power. This gives more credence to black power. Like, look... 
King was the good one. He was the nonviolent one. He was the one that the white people respected the most. And now, look, they killed him. Even though he was a divisive figure in later years, even among African-American communities, he is either passe or maybe losing his mind for going on this whole economics thing. Um, it looks like there's going to be bigger conflict. And, and it's going to be headed for much bigger conflict. And we're going to talk more about other bad things that happened in 1968 in another lecture. But you should also know that it's an election year. It's an election year, and a lot of white folks are scared and are looking for more protection. They're afraid that the civil rights movement has gone too far. They're looking for somebody to bring um, stability to the country. Dare I say, law and order. And next class, next lecture, we are going to talk about the law and order candidate of 1968. And that, this is Dr. Tully for History 327, wishing you a good one. <laughs>